Welcome to the Cosmic Business Podcast. I'm Paula Crossfield, a Vedic astrologer, business coach, and CEO of Weave Your Bliss, a company with the goal to help a million spirit-led entrepreneurs build a cosmic business around their genius so that they can earn wildly well and bankroll the change they want to see in the world. A cosmic business is a new paradigm business that believes in collaboration over competition, building a business around your unique genius, aligning to the planets and your intuition, leading with your values, putting your health and the health of the planet first, treating people fairly and building giving into your business model. Sounds fabulous, right? On this show, I will take you behind the scenes of my thriving multi-six-figure business, including strategy on closing more sales, nurturing your community online, plus astrological insights to optimize your business and life. We'll also feature conversations with spirit-led business owners, creatives, and change makers to inspire you. I'm coming to you from our regenerative farm in rural Maine, my happy place, where we are currently creating space to welcome community for retreat and earth reconnection. Let's jump into the conversation. Hello, and welcome to the Cosmic Business Podcast. I'm Paula, your host. I'm so excited that you're here. Welcome. I am actually out this week. And so I thought that I would prepare a couple of episodes both this week and next week of replays in case you missed them the first time around because I feel like they're very helpful for people who are entrepreneurs who are thinking about business from a spiritual perspective, who are using spiritual practice to help support them. So today's episode specifically is with Shantala Sri Ramaya, who is my Vedic chanting teacher. And this episode aired about a year and a half ago. Since that time, I have taken her course on the Rudram, which is a chant to Shiva, which is pretty intense and takes some time to learn. So I studied that with her for a year and I'm now doing the Chamakam, which is the follow-up to the Rudram, where you actually are like asking for boons after you have completed the chant. So I highly recommend checking out her work at vedastudies.com. We talk about so much in this episode. We talk about her journey, first of all, from being an engineer to then going on to start her own business in Vedic chanting, how she got started because she comes from a family of chanters. We also talk a lot about how as a spiritual person offering spiritual services, especially in the Vedic tradition, what her perspective is on that and why she feels really good about charging for her services. So if you are somebody who sells spiritual support in some way, you won't want to miss that part of this interview. And we also talk about chanting itself, how it supports you in all areas of your life, how she actually used it to help her build this business how you can use it if you want to summon the courage to get to the next level in business. So I definitely recommend listening to this. And especially if you've already heard it, you listen to it when it came out, listen to it again, because I listened to it before recording this intro, and I found it to be as enlightening as when I had the conversation. So I hope that's helpful to you. Also, if you are interested in healing your money karma with me live this summer, I'm going to be offering through the month of August support in the form of my course, Heal Your Money Karma, which is formerly called 
cosmic cash flow. And I will also be doing very limited money karma analyses. So this gives you a chance to look at your personal money karma, ask me some very specific questions about your money situation. That could be about timing. It could be about remedies that you would like to use to help you with different aspects. Um, and my general recommendations based on your chart for what you could do to increase your flow. So this is all taking place this summer live with me. As I said, you can go and sign up at the link in the show notes for Heal Your Money Karma, the course. Or if you would like to add on a money karma analysis, there will be a limited number and you can go do that at the link. And I look forward to connecting with you throughout the month of August. If you join now, obviously you get access to the materials early and you can get started early. This is a deep dive into your financial health, getting clear about your numbers, working with the planet Saturn, working with remedies. And also Shantala has a part in this course because she is teaching a Lakshmi mantra. And there's an hour long teaching with her where she talks about wealth in the Vedas and explains how to have a good relationship with money. And then we have 108 of the Lakshmi mantra that she teaches that you can chant alongside her. So without further ado, please do enjoy this wonderful interview with my teacher, Shantala Sri Ramaya. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode. I am really looking forward to sharing this interview that I did with Shantala Sri Ramaya, who studied Sanskrit chanting and Indian scriptures from an early age as part of her family tradition and school education in Bangalore, India. We talk a lot about Vedic chanting and what it is, how it differs from Kirtan, the work that she does to help bring the Vedas to new audiences, new people, so that we can utilize these ancient healing tools as medicine in our modern world. Shantala has been mentored by several Vedic scholars and teaches a growing global community of students through her online platform, which is in the show notes. It's Veda Studies. She's also keen on connecting aspirants to the relevance of the Vedas for personal development and to the source texts of yoga. She's based in Brussels, Belgium. I think you're going to love this episode, especially if you are interested in having an online business or your business has to do with sacred things. Shantala is great at describing what she does and how she found her purpose and the magical things that happened along the way for her as she met her teachers and really reinvented teaching such an ancient art of learning to chant. This was something that was done guru student in person. And she's been kind of on the forefront of bringing this to a brand new audience. So I really look forward to you hearing more from Shantala. Now we'll jump into the interview with Shantala Sri Ramaya. Thank you so much. Hello, Shantala Sri Ramaya. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Paula. Thank you for having me. I'm so grateful for you taking the time. I've been taking some of your classes and have been, you know, aware of what you're doing and and just looking forward to diving into Vedic chanting. So I'm really grateful that you're here and you're going to tell us a little bit more. I'm very happy to be here, Paula. I've been following your work as well and watching uh, you move to your farm and very inspiring. So I'm very happy to talk with you as well. I would love to get started by having you tell us a little bit about your journey because I know you grew up in a chanting household. So I would love to know how that informed you growing up 
and led you on your journey? Because I know you then became an engineer and you were moving in a different direction. And then you brought some of those skills back. So can you take us on a little walk through that experience? Absolutely. It's been just an amazing journey for me. And I know you said that something took me on another path. But for me now, in hindsight, it was all meant to be. I was meant to do those things and collect those skills to use it, you know, very purposefully later on. I grew up in a very religious, very spiritual family. Both my parents have been huge influence on my upbringing and, you know, how I grew up. And my mother was also a chanting teacher and she mainly taught in our living room. So the whole time, literally since I've been, since I was born, I'm seeing my mother teach in our living room and she taught texts like Bhagavad Gita and Sandarya Lahari and Lalita Sahasranama. So not Veda chanting because in her time, women were not initiated into Vedic chanting. So it was all these other, other texts and she was a great Devi devotee. She's the greatest Devi devotee I'll ever know. Our home was named after Lalita, the goddess Lalita. In the first verse, the first name of Lalita, Sri Mata, is the name of our home at the moment as well in Bangalore, in India. She taught me the Lalita Sahasranama in that home. And I learned a lot from her, you know, the Bhagavad Gita chanting and all of these texts. And I, I watched her teach other people. So hundreds of women mostly would come home and uh, study with her. It was such a beautiful experience. I would also, when I was living in Mumbai, I'd go back home and I'd go to these all these other places she would go to teach. And it was really wonderful to see the type of connections she'd make with all these hundreds and hundreds of people. So when she, and of course, I'm from Bangalore, which means that at, at least in my generation, we all first became engineers before we had any kind of life goal in mind. <laughs> It was just something we did. We either became engineers or doctors and a law degree was considered acceptable. But if you went into political science or wanted to study art history, it meant that you didn't have a good math score in your 10th grade. <laughs> you know, we had a very large number of engineering colleges and job opportunities, of course. You know, Microsoft was setting up and all these big tech companies were setting up in Bangalore back then. So I became an engineer and pursued that field for about 20 years. But as part of that technology job, I was heading HR and learning and development. So my main job was to roll out all of the online learning platforms for you know employee learning. And I was also creating content. So I was creating all of the product trainings for companies like America Online and Dell and Microsoft and all these tech companies. <laughs> I was heading all of the process training, so to speak. And so I learned, I gathered a lot of these skills, but the whole time I always knew this was not, that was not my final job. I loved it. I absolutely loved working with brilliant people and great bosses. I'm in touch with all of them even now. Great relationships, wonderful friends made along the way. But I always knew that was not my final thing. And the whole time, I would take time off, like I'd take a sabbatical and I did a yoga teacher training and I'd go to this art of living course and went on many, many pilgrimages, um, several with my family, but also with my brother. And, you know, it was just um, 
it was just something and I didn't know what it was. And it's so incredible that the whole time what I was meant to do was right under my nose. I was saying this to another friend the other day that, so I gained this engineering degree. So I'm a bachelor of engineering and I have a master's degree in organizational psychology. And I have, I don't know how many diplomas, you know, these certifications in psychometric testing and all these things, very useful in a corporate environment. But it's my mother who didn't even finish her 10th grade, who left me my life career. Yeah. And I also went to a school. Um, it's called a Kendriya Vidyalaya in India. This is a, a school system made for the central government family. So central government employees. And my dad was in the Air Force. So I went to one of these Kendriya Vidyalayas where they taught Sanskrit and yoga. So from a very young age at home and in school, I've had this constant exposure to Sanskrit chanting. Our, you know, morning prayer in school was Sahana Vavatu and Asatoma. And, and we studied Sanskrit texts and, you know, I had up to a spoken language, you know, spoken um, level in Sanskrit. And the chanting stayed with me. It's something I enjoyed, but I never imagined that I'd be teaching chanting after I moved to Europe. <laughs> so that really has been quite a journey. Wow. So amazing. Thank you for sharing. And, you know, I, I got to look at your chart before we started. So as you're talking, I'm thinking about just how magical it is to have your ruling planet in the third, first of all, and have it ha be in this exchange with Mars. So Mars and Mercury are exchanging in your first house. So that amplifies the things of the third house, which we could say engineering because you've got Saturn aspecting in from the ninth, but also spiritual matters, discipline, and online tech platforms. And what's beautiful is the activated planets that you've been going through since you were born. You were born into the very end of Mars, went into Rahu, then Jupiter, then Saturn. So you've been going through this purification and refinement, you know, that brought you to this place of being able to sit fully. And I know you have a very dedicated practice. So, you know, having that be the foundation and letting that all kind of flow from there is really beautiful. So I'm, I am curious, how did you get started with Veda studies? And were you teaching in person at first in Belgium? Uh, yes, I was indeed. So the way I got started was really when my mother passed away, which is almost coming to 10 years now that she she passed away. And I watched, I was there, um, you know, just a few weeks before she, uh, she passed. And there used to be this huge line of people waiting to meet her. She had this, I don't know, she's had this amazing impact on in her community. And it was very inspiring to see. And the day she passed, my dad told me that it was not as if somebody died. It was as if there was something electric going on because there were people standing on the street outside our home and chanting. So all her students and friends and it's so incredible to hear this. And I was thinking, you know, I should be doing something that impacts my community and is, I don't know, giving something, you know, offering something. At the same time, you know, I had just become a mom. So I just had a, had a baby and I was in this full-time corporate job, <laughs> traveling three times, uh, three days a week. So of course, I was on my maternity leave when my mother passed away. And I went back to my job and I used to 
I remember I used to go into the restroom and I used to sob because I used to leave my baby in childcare and I didn't enjoy it at all. And so I decided that year that I was going to leave my job and I had no idea what I'd do. And my husband wasn't employed at that moment. <laughs> it was a huge decision for us as a family because um, you need to pay the bills and everything. But still, I have a very, I have to say, really, I have an extremely supportive husband who has sort of been very, um, he has sort of been very encouraging of my intuitive side, let's say. So he's like, okay, let's go for it and let's do this. And uh, which was a great decision because he built up a business then furiously, was very motivated to that worked very well. While I was, uh, you know, sort of waiting around seeing what is my thing going to be? You know, I said, one of my friends came and she saw my bookcase and she saw this book on Lalita Sahasranama and she says, do you know this? And I'm like, yes, I do. I was sort of, I've been chanting it my whole life. And she said, so why don't we do a little event? You know, we'll call a few friends and maybe you can tell us about it and we can chant a little bit. And so it started like that. <laughs> I said, okay, I can do this for fun while I'm waiting for my real calling to find me. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> and so this, you know, it became... Uh, started with four friends getting together to do this and turned into seven friends. And then one of them was the owner of a yoga studio and she asked me to come and teach at her center. And so that's really how Veda Studies was born. I just started to do it for fun. And I was teaching only in person. And I was teaching really without any business goal or anything like that in mind. And I remember just a few months afterwards, Literally in the middle of the night, I woke up and I told my husband, but this is it. This is it. This is what I want to be doing. You know, and there's nothing to look for. It's this is it. And so literally th that very night, he started to build my first website for me. It was called Sanskrit Belgium back then. So this is I think back in 2013. Yeah. So just my son was not even a year old when I started to do that. It was really fun. And there were times I remember my first class or second class that nobody came you know there was a class <laughs> published and nobody came of course because here I am in Belgium I have no network because I've just left this corporate environment I don't know anybody in the yoga world or any other other world and I just had a, a little website that nobody used to visit but I kept at it you know and um, I just didn't feel like there was anything so I remember not feeling these things. I remember not feeling doubt. I remember not feeling fear. I remember not feeling any depressed or dejected that people wouldn't show up. Can you tell us more? Because I think where a lot of people get stuck, like when they're a new entrepreneur or something is when somebody doesn't come, you have this class, somebody doesn't come. It's like, well, am I not doing what I'm supposed to be doing? So where did that emerge from within you to not have doubt, to feel really clear? Well, one thing is I'm from a business family. So I've seen my father start up, you know, leave the Indian Air Force, a very secure space where they take care of everything for you. They give you a house and it's a beautiful house and you have friends and you have uh, all kinds of, you know, rations. <laughs> There's a canteen and you get all kinds of things. Everything is so secure. Leave that environment and start up his own business. I remember he started his business. He didn't have a phone. 
He didn't have a business card and he barely had an address. <laughs> so, and I've seen him go door to door, figure out his business and become very, very successful. I think it was my dad who told me, you know, it doesn't matter if nobody comes, you have to keep doing what you need to do. For me, I think when my dad says something, it's, I take it quite seriously because I've seen him through those life experiences. Also, I also knew that what I was doing was very, very different for people in the West, especially. It was completely new. They had no idea what I was doing. Some people did. People who went to India and came back knew what I was doing. But many would come hear the chanting and they'd feel something familiar. You know, it gave me something to build on. Even if two people would come, it was okay for me. And of course, my husband kept saying, I think that the support system is very important. If you're completely alone and you have to pay the bills completely on your own, and if you're then not able to sort of figure out the beginning, it can be hard. I totally understand that. I think I've had a lot of support. But internally, I don't remember feeling this fear. You know, I just remember feeling very clear that this is what I needed to do. It wasn't clear you know, the format of things and the content of things. But the idea of me being the person who would be teaching and sharing, chanting with people, that was very clear. And because of that, there was really no doubt and there was no fear. Beautiful. I love that. And and we were talking a little bit. I'm wondering if we can get into just being in business around sacred subjects. And just can you share a little bit about um, that because I know a lot of people have grown up with an experience of having a guru and maybe sitting at the guru's feet and learning and giving dakshina or like a donation for that. So can you talk a little bit about how that is different for you and what your thoughts are? Even my mother, when she taught her classes, she did not take money from anybody. It was not an exchange and she simply did it for the love of it. Of course, there was an exchange, you know, she received a lot of love and she built up a community. I mean, she was like the pillar of her community. And so she did receive that in exchange. But, you know, times times are quite different. It was also initially difficult for my dad and family to understand what I was doing. But they're completely, you know, aligned with what I'm doing now. But we do need, you know, we're in a different time where you need to sort of, especially when I'm doing something where people don't know what it is and cannot assign a specific value to it. This is not in any way negative, because it's not that people don't value what I'm doing, but they probably don't have an idea at the time. I'm talking about almost eight years ago. I don't think people had an idea what kind of value to give it. So for me, it was just a matter of helping people understand how to value it. So, you know, I would simply look at it as if you went to a yoga class, what is the exchange you would have with that teacher? That is sort of what I would, what I would do, which has, of course, evolved since then. I simply, you know, it's not no longer based on that alone, but it was a very simple process I used to allow people to value. But also, you know, when you go to a, a gurukulam in a traditional setting, you are investing. You're investing. There is absolutely no question about you investing. You're investing your time, your energy, you know, all your, your life giving force, you know, your prana. There is no question. The discipline is something completely expected from you. 
So this is sort of built and you're in an environment that sort of thrives on that. But here we are householders. And we need something to keep us on track. And uh, it's been very clear to me that when people invest, they also put a little more effort into the discipline and it helps the discipline along. So initially we need those, you know, sort of primers, so to speak, to push something along. And the ones who invest I've seen are the ones who continue the practice, who are disciplined in the practice, who want feedback and who want to make the most of that time together and of that teaching. Yes, I agree so much. I see the same in my clients. When they invest, they show up ready. They really have set aside the time. They're not at all distracted. They're ready to receive whatever it is that they're going to receive. And of course, you and I both were householders. We have bills. <laughs> we have to be thriving. And, and I find when I'm thriving, what I give is that much more powerful. So that's what I also talk to my clients about. Exactly. So the fact that people, so many people now are investing in their learning has helped me build Veda studies up to a really good standard as well. Without this investment, Veda studies wouldn't be at a place where there were 26 self-paced courses on a reliable platform, you know, with good quality audio learning resources, the workbooks, the you know, just the methodology with which I teach all of the months and months I spend on each workbook to create the Vedic phonetic guide, the word by word meaning, you know, the research that's gone into it, that would not have been possible. So I think that just as a community, we thrive, not just me and not just a student, but all of us are benefiting from this exchange that happens. Absolutely. So I want to get into like what the difference is between, say, kirtan or non-Vedic chanting, and I'm using air quotes for those who cannot see. But can you talk about like what the difference is? What was the original purpose behind Vedic chanting? How does using that methodology help people in a different way than, say, just repeating the name of God in other forms or whatever you want to say in mantras? It's a really good question, something I've thought about for so many years now, because of course, when I started to teach chanting, many people would show up expecting something more lively. What they would receive was a fairly austere. I remember I've kept some of the class sort of specifications I would write out. I would write in brackets, not kirtan, there will be no music, there will be some Sanskrit involved, things like that, to make it clear that people weren't coming to something lively in that sense. So the difference, when we talk about Vedic chanting, you know, I was saying this to another friend the other day, it's like saying, like in Starbucks, you know, you go to Starbucks, and you see this on the menu, you see chai tea, which for an Indian is just very odd, because chai is tea, chai is the Hindi word for tea. So chai tea is like tea tea. And Vedic chanting is the same, because Veda is through chanting. Veda is sound. It's truthy. So Veda is defined by these Varna, Swara, Matra, Balam, Sama, Santanaha. Sorry about all the Sanskrit words, but it's basically a um, rigor of sound, basically. How is the sound produced? It's produced through 
proper varna, correct pronunciation of Vedic Sanskrit syllables. And in Vedic Sanskrit, there are some extra things that are not used in even classical Sanskrit. And then the most defining part of Veda, Vedic chanting, is the swara. And swara is the intonation. And in music, you use seven notes. In Veda, we use only three notes and there are some nuances around these three notes. So the chanting remains in a range of middle, half note up, half note down, a meditative range. And it's rather brisk and austere sounding in that sense. So for example, let me just recite the Gayatri Mantra because this is the one mantra that is has been transformed into other kinds of practices. Songs. Songs, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> so, Gayatri Mantra would sound like this, sounds like this in the Veda. Om Bhur Bhuvasuvaha Tatsavitur Bare Indyam Bhargo Devasya Dhimahi so you'll hear a middle note, half note down, half note up. There's no other sort of expression in raga, you know, or melody of it. So the moment you do that, it is no longer Veda. Because Veda's definition is through its notes. The notes mean something. This half level up, half level down, half note down is all part of Veda. It's, it's an embedded in the Veda system. So through the Shruti means the sound. And so Vedic chanting is basically the chanting of the core Veda texts, the four books, Rigveda, Samaveda, Yajurveda, and Atharva Veda. And it follows that rigor. And some of the other uh, Sanskrit words I mentioned are all the different rules, aspirated sounds, the sound combinations, when two syllables combine, they sometimes form a sound that is different from how it looks on the text. And we need to know these things. So we need some knowledge of Sanskrit syllables, the grammar. We need to understand and maintain these notes because every syllable is very specific on whether it's on a high note or a low note. And we maintain that very, very precisely. So you can understand now then that Veda chanting requires 100% concentration, 100% absorption in that one practice while you're practicing. So you can't also be playing a musical instrument and you can't be thinking about your Sangha and that's not what the practice is. So the practice is 100% concentration on following the rigor of the text, maintaining the integrity of the Sanskrit, Vedic Sanskrit language, and connecting with Ishvara, connecting with the divine through that rigor, because of the way the mantras are structured in the Veda. If you think about Veda mantras as having, let's say, three parts, one part is a rhythmic sound movement. We refer to that as chandas. So if the Veda if you visualize the Veda to be a person, this would be the feet of the person. So there's a rhythmic sound movement. Each mantra has a certain number of syllables and it's counted. And so we maintain that rhythmic nature. And then there is a, a meaning element to it, just as every other sound has. If I say the word apple, something happens to you, right? You think of something. Same with the Veda mantras. When they are chanted, 
there is a certain psychological effect and meaning it is conveying and transforming. It's like the original sound healing, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's, I just having studied with Dr. Robert Svoboda, the nature of Sanskrit is that it's a constructed language that acts like medicine almost as we say the words, it's clarifying. So I'm curious, like, how does this relate to prayer? How does this relate to like getting into a meditative state? You know, there's another element to the Veda mantras, which is all of the mantras have something embedded in them. So, which is what we'd call, let's say, a universal truth. Because when you chant these mantras, there is an indescribable feeling of calm, despite having all putting all this effort, you know, in learning the Sanskrit alphabet, the swaras and the matra, the balam, you know, the exact way to pronounce them and sort of recite them. But there is something deeply calming about it. There is an immediate response from the universe which is what is the, the divine nature of Veda mantras. So we say that there is unquestionably a grace you receive when you chant Vedic mantras. And I speak um, mostly from experience because this Veda studies is something I started from literally nothing and I sort of built up based on my practice. You know, I just kept going. I kept chanting Agni mantras because I needed to have the fire, I needed to have the drive, the willpower to chant these mantras. So chanting Agni mantras, which is what my teacher made me do while I was setting up Veda studies. And so the logo of Veda studies is also Agni, you know, the little flame. And I chanted Agni mantras for me to have the willpower. And I remember feeling completely driven to do it. And every other resource in your life, there is a god or a goddess in the Veda mantras. For it. So every single resource, you want internal, you want mental clarity, we chant the Gayatri Mantra. We want to have a power of discernment, power of analysis, we chant Medha Suktam, there is Goddess Medha, to develop dedication to your practice. We have Shraddha Suktam, so we have Goddess Shraddha. So all of these are so beautifully, clearly defined in the Veda. Every psychological aspect you want to develop in yourself exists in the Veda as a god or a goddess. So for me, it has been the greatest self-help practice. It's all these things that I studied in HR frameworks. It's all there in this very divine way in the Veda. I love that. Thank you so much <laughs> for putting it into that context. I've just, I love that so much. And I want to pull out here that you mentioned that your teacher had you chanting these Agni mantras while you were setting up Veda studies. So your teachers must be incredible. They understand the vision that you're trying to put forward. And you mentioned earlier your mother having lived in a time where women were not allowed to chant Veda. So can you talk about your journey and how you ended up meeting your teachers, maybe mentioning who they are? And also, how did you get the grace to, to be able to do the Veda chanting? What's, what has changed? <laughs> it's really beautiful. So I'm talking about two different teachers here. Actually, I have a team of teachers, I have to say. So I'll talk about them a little bit. My primary teacher is Vidwan M.S. Srinivasan. Vidwan is the word for a scholar. So he's a Vedic scholar and pundit, very famous in the south of India, very famous worldwide with the Indian diaspora, actually. He tells me my journey in the most beautiful way. He says that 
the reason I got into Veda chanting, study with him and for such a long time is purely a result of my mother's lifelong sadhana. And that was so beautiful for me to hear and so meaningful as a continuation because the way I approached him was extremely random. I just literally called him and of course their cousin, etc. You know, Bangalore is very connected like that. We call each other and <laughs> so I managed to get his number and I called him and I literally I asked him if he would teach me. Because I had been chanting already. I'd studied Vedic chanting with another teacher and I'd also learned a little bit in my own family because we have, you know, pundits coming over all the time and doing rituals and pujas. So it's not like I didn't know it. But in our tradition, you need to have a teacher mentoring you continuously. To be to call yourself a practitioner, you need to have a teacher. Otherwise you're not a practitioner. So I called him. And I have no idea why he said yes. And he has no idea why he said yes. <laughs> this is what he tells me. He says in Kannada, you know, our language. He says, I'm not sure why I said yes to you because he does not accept private students. He does not teach anyone one-on-one. -on -one. And I was asking for something very big when I called him. So I had this audition and everything, of course, because he will not accept anyone who can't maintain swara because it's not something you can work with. So he made me chant Durga Suktam and all these other things. And he's like, yeah, lot of mistakes, lot of mistakes. We have a lot of work to do, he said. <laughs> and it was so beautiful. But after that, we set a time and everything, but he was not used to teaching someone one-on-one. -on -one, so he wouldn't remember. And he'd always be busy, you know, with something or the other. And he started to feel bad that, you know, he would teach me something and then there'd be this gap of several weeks. And then I'd, but I kept calling. So for me, it was, I used to tell my husband, I feel like I'm in karate kid right now. I don't know, Paula, how <laughs> old you are, but I grew up with, you know, at that age of growing up with karate kid. Mm -hmm. So this kid would go to his teacher and he would have to be cleaning the car and polishing and doing all these other things. And so for me, I was learning other things. He was not teaching me Veda. He was teaching me the Lalita Sahasranama, which I'd already learned. And I was, you know, learning these other things, Aditya Hridayam. And so he was preparing me. It was this very long initiation. I had more than six months of preparation. And then he started to teach me a Vedic chanting. And it's really almost three years later that he revealed to me that I'm the only one-on-one -on -one student he has ever accepted and has taught for so many years and continues to. He's got a few others now, you know, since COVID happened, he's taken on a few more. But that was for me very moving moment, but also a moment of great responsibility that I had to do something significant with what he was offering me. So that was one teacher. And so it's really a, a complete mystery, but also not. It was just meant to be. And he told me that this is all thanks to your mother's sadhana. And then I have Dr. Kashyap, who runs this organization called Sakshi in Bangalore, also in my city. And it's amazing how I met him because here I'm sitting in Brussels and I have a weakness for books. So I keep ordering books. <laughs> and I found this little book on, it said Ganapati Brahmanaspati Kumara. And because it had the right transliteration on it, I said, it must be okay to read. And I ordered it and it was authored by Dr. Kashyap. And it had the most astounding translation to my 
uh, opening prayer, you know, uh, I chant this Ganapati mantra to open all my classes. And he had a very beautiful, powerful explanation to it. And I was like, oh my God, who is this person who has written this translation? Turns out it's somebody in my own city. And I was going to Bangalore three times a day, uh, three times a, a year. And so I met him and he introduced me to a methodology to study the Veda in a deeper way, understanding uh, the semantics of the Rigveda in a very technical way, research-based, like understanding the word Saraswati by understanding all the 74 times it appears in the Veda, a very thorough type of study. So I've been studying with him for a very long time. And he told me, the first thing he tells me is, if anyone tells you that as a woman, you should not chant Veda, please ask them this question. Ask them to quote from the Veda where it says that you should not be chanting the Veda. And he says this should send people on a quest. They will never find the answer to because Dr. Kashyap has translated all of the Veda mantras and it does not exist there, this practice. So it's something that came about later and has been misconstrued heavily, of course. But there is no, no problem with women chanting Veda at all. And this is proof, you know, a very traditional South Indian pundit is teaching me a woman. His uh, wife teaches, his daughter teaches, and he is saying very clearly that we follow the Veda. We don't follow any other teaching. We follow the Veda and therefore we teach women. And this is one of the few traditional Veda Patashalas where you'll see one half of the class is all women. It's wonderful. That's how I came to be you know, a teacher of Vedic chanting. I do love all the other chanting, but Vedic chanting has always sort of given me goosebumps and I always wanted to pursue it. And at the right time, the right teachers have prepared me and mentor me and encourage me and support me deeply. I love that. Thank you. I, I, I'm curious because this podcast is all about living in your purpose. And I feel like you've given us so much just about kind of being curious and opening to the next thing and listening to your intuition, you know, but can you can you say a little bit more about your path and how you view living in your purpose? It's everything, Paula. I think that there, you need to have a lot of grace to find that purpose, to know it, to know the purpose. I think you need grace. For me, uh, prayer is a very, very important aspect of my life. I think it is only through prayer that I have found my purpose. I have found all of the resources. I have found the right people. The right people have found me has all been only through grace. So this whole living in your purpose is really a result of me understanding and adopting a prayerful life, I think. And I've also had teachers help me understand this, what this prayerful life means because I am an engineer, very rational as well. There's a part of me very rational. And so even growing up, I'd see all these rituals and ceremonies and, you know, there's a deep connection and I can feel it. I've seen my dad through prayer. What he has achieved is just for me, just astounding as well. You know, he's someone who at some at one a point in life, he tells us this, could not even afford to wear shoes someone like that to build up his life through prayer, through ritual, really provide for us a very, very good life. And, you know, he's quite a wealthy man now, my dad. <laughs> uh, 
for me, that was very, very, very important to live in a prayerful way. Although I didn't fully understand, you know, what it meant, you know, just saying these prayers or is it the ritual? Is it the action? Is it asking for something? And this whole asking for something was really a problem is, you know, was very problematic for me because I thought that this whole idea of connecting with the divine meant only saying thanks and not asking for something. And then along came my Vedanta teachers, Nima and Surya. And I used to follow them around like you'd follow around a rock band. I followed them to all the streets and <laughs> I'd host them in Belgium. And when I would listen to Nima speaking, for me, it was like being plugged into electricity, so attentive, completely in attention. And, and she taught me that there is no asking for something. You know, whether it is your purpose or whether it is more ordinary resources like the ability to pay your rent. But, you know, asking for your life purpose is also a prayer. And she told me that intelligent people reach out and ask for help. Also, be discerning about who you ask for help. <laughs> and so understand Ishwara, you know, this divine, our divine universe, the all-knowing, all-powerful Ishwara. Ask the best person for help. All of the Vedic prayers are basically your toolkit to ask the best person for help for all kinds of resources. <laughs> so I tell people, if you want to also sort of explore and find your purpose in life, do Gayatri Japa every day, which is about complete clarity, having full clarity. It's like standing in front of the yogurt stand in the supermarket where these hundreds of yogurts, but knowing that you're just going to take that natural one and not anything else. And nothing else is even a choice. Uh, Sri Srinivasan, you know, the other teacher. And I started to hear the same language from all my teachers. Even though I heard this, you know, ex the prayer explained from one teacher, I'd hear the same language from all my teachers. I heard Emma Srinivasan say once that, you know, in our family, for us, his the entire family, it's their profession to conduct Vedic rituals. And they teach Vedic chanting as a service to the community. And they said that this is our pravritti. Vritti is your profession. Pravritti is your chosen profession. And there was no choice, he says, in the most joyful way. You know, so there is, usually we say no choice when it's something negative. I had no choice. But they say it as the most positive thing. Because they were so clear about their path that for them, the choices didn't present itself. I feel the same way. I feel like now I don't see any other choice in what I have to do. And it's very clear and it's very luminous. It's very joyful. You sort of want to jump out of your bed and you're very happy to go to work, which is... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know what I'm saying. I do. Yeah. I, I think, you know, understanding what the core of something is, like there's choice in how you present what it is you're doing online, you choose which texts you want to teach, which, but the, the core, you know, the thing for me, which is Vedic astrology, that's at the core of everything that I do. So I totally understand and so beautiful. I think this is going to be a really helpful episode for people. Yeah. And I don't want to sound like I've not had any kind of blocks along the way, you know, there's lots of challenges I still face, you know, every day, but it doesn't stop me. Right. Now we come back full circle. <laughs> <laughs>
it's not letting the doubt overtake you, not letting the waves kind of overtake you. So what is the foundational practice or, you know, the foundational place that you can come back to for refuge in whatever's going on? Exactly. I think if someone else saw my life, you'd see it full of obstacles. Because last year, my husband's business completely collapsed. And we were relying on him for our income, not mine. Mine was the pravriti, you know, my chosen. <laughs> it's what I did. I teach one class and go to lunch. You know, it was all very joyful in that way. There were no responsibilities associated with it. He was in the is <laughs> in the travel business, which obviously sort of uh, went belly up. We've relied on this, which has been you know uh, so much grace. Uh, I'm very thankful that I have this loyal group of followers who sign up to my classes and courses and keep this going and keep Veda studies going. Yes. And so, so beautiful. That is like the kind of perfect way to talk about Saturn, you know, because Saturn gives you those lessons that are hard and makes you step fully into the work. Like it's not, Saturn is there to remind you, you have this responsibility, you're sharing this beautiful gift with so many people and you've just created a portal for people to step through. And now how do you amplify that and actually you know, Saturn pulls the rug out from under you in one area of life so that you're like, okay, I have to do the work so that I make the income I need to support the family again. (laughs) Exactly. And I cannot imagine doing anything else. So for me, it was like, I'm going to make this work. So I have a few rapid fire questions for you if you're open. You can answer as much as you want or not. Um, You can pass if you don't want to answer one. It's totally fine. (laughs) Okay, I will try. What is one piece of advice that has really helped you in your life? My teacher, Dr. Kashyap, telling me that you have more resources than you think you have. Mm. And they're in you. (laughs) For me, that has been been the best piece of advice. Because when I started Veda Studies, I really had nothing. I didn't even have a mic. So the idea of building a chanting practice online was unthinkable. To hear him say that for me, I I just got started. And I did it in an without any real professional help in that sense. You know, I've built most of it myself. And since last year, I have a lot more help, many people involved. But I built maybe up to 15 courses literally on my own, building every single page myself. So they're not all pretty, but they work. (laughs) I think they're very pretty. And I just want to say, because I didn't get this put in earlier, you know, having taken some of your classes, you make it really easy to learn this very complex thing. So if people are like, whoa, this sounds really intense, like Shantala will take you through in a really comprehensive way, you know, so that you understand and you don't feel confused. (laughs) Which leads me into my next question, which is when you feel anxious, confused or frustrated, what is the first thing that you do to ground yourself? I um, go back to my practice. So there's two things I do in the morning. I have my Gayatri. It's a Gayatri Pranayama. It's a silent japa I do, but it it precedes a pranayama practice. And But during the day when I have anxious moments, I try to go back to that same practice. So I do a few rounds of Gayatri in in my head. If possible, I like to do something very, very normal, I think, is to simply step out for a walk if that's possible. But a lot of the time, my anxiety is usually caused at home and I need to stay at home. <laughs> Kids and everything. I try to do my mantra in my head. My mantra is what has grounded me. So I have a few other mantras as well that ground me. 
So just for those listening, if you don't know what japa is, it's recitation of a mantra. So it's a practice. Am I saying, am I, would you say that's right? <laughs> Perfect, Paula. That's exactly right. So I repeat my mantra silently and it grounds me. What is your favorite hot beverage? Masala chai. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> and what about your last meal on earth? Oh, this is terrible. Okay. So I know I should be saying don't tell anyone, but I don't know how many hundreds of people are going to listen to this. But there is this decadent little cafe in Maleshwaram in Bangalore. They make this butter masala dosa. I think that would be it. <laughs> There's two camps. There's usually like the, the healthy yes. sattvic food camp at the end of life. And then there's like the let's just go for it. It's the last day. <laughs> yeah. So I think this would be very bad, bad food. <laughs> I wish I could make masala dosa because I really miss having a good masala dosa. I don't live in a place. I live in rural Maine now, so I can't really access that. So it sounds good to me. So I, I normally ask people if they have a morning routine and what is non-negotiable. It sounds like you already told us that, but is there anything else that's part of your morning routine? I have an asana practice as well. I, I'd say I'm a little more flexible with that practice in the sense that if I'm pressed for time, that is what I will compromise on. But my morning pranayama japa practice, uh, I don't miss. I also practice two hours a day later on as well. And it is quite non-negotiable for me as well. It's in my calendar. I do that practice because I learn uh, long texts and to sort of maintain my spot with my teacher, I need to do this investment and I've come to love this investment. So I really enjoy my solitary self-practice without, you know, an audience and without my teacher listening to me. and. This is my anchor. So I get all my discipline, self-discipline, my drive to do things, all of that from my own practice. So that is two hours per day. And I, it's in my calendar. And if I miss a half an hour, I put it in somewhere else. It happens. I love that. And I just want to say that Shantala has small children and she still maintains <laughs> this practice and is like, you know, a powerhouse businesswoman. So... Oh my That's, God, I would not call myself a powerhouse <laughs> businesswoman. If my husband listens to this, he's going to laugh. <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> I think we're moving towards a, a place where entrepreneurs and, and business in general is, is going to look differently. And it's going to be about coming from our practice, coming from our ease and creating these beautiful things from that Shakti, from that power that we, we create rather than the hours spent. You know? Absolutely. Hola. And I spent 20 years in the corporate environment, being part of creating corporate goals and visions and all of that. And when I started Veda studies, it's coming from, you know, the same sort of frameworks are there, but it's coming from a different, the source is different. So tell us about a person who inspires you and why there's been so many in this episode, but maybe you want to talk a little more about somebody. Oh, there's quite a few people. In general, I wouldn't single out one person. I think in general, for me, people who excel in their craft, excel in what they offer. Demonstrably, you can see the amount of work that's gone behind something inspire me a great deal. And I've been very, very blessed to be in the company of many, many such people. And they all inspire me. 
the main thing I think I'm saying is that I like seeing successful people and I like knowing how they got there. I like to see people who are very, very good at what they do. So all of those types of qualities really inspire me, people who've struggled too. So I think my dad is a big inspiration for me because he is, for me in my own life, the biggest rags to riches story guy. He came from nothing. He's taken us, you know, the family to a very different place. I love that the the way that you put that into context, because I feel that's why I started this podcast in the first place, because I had these fascinating people who had kind of distilled something about learning how to live in your purpose and to find success despite obstacles. So thank you for, for saying it in that way. It was really clarifying. Um, so something people may not know about you. I think what people might not know, especially in this, my friends from college might know, but people listening to this podcast and, you know, this since I've been running Veda studies is I used to enjoy alternative. I still do. You know, I went to engineering college. So a lot of rock, <laughs> metal, and, and I became very, very fond of alternative music. So I listened to Smashing Pumpkins, and, but also poets like Leonard Cohen and and this Icelandic band, uh, Sigurás, used to love them. I used to play Sigurás in my, you know, little studio in Mumbai and just really love it. Cool. And so I don't think my students even know about this about me. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So what are you reading right now? You said you like books. So share with us. Well, at the moment, very boring because I'm reading Swami Dayananda Saraswati's, you know, Bhagavad Gita, the home study thing. So I'm reading that a lot. So very boring at the moment, but in the past, I have read really bad legal thrillers. I used to love them. I mean, I still do. (laughs) So New Year's Eve, that's what I'll be reading, some very trashy legal thriller. (laughs) I think one of my favorite books is Anne Michaels' Fugitive Pieces. I love that type of writing, very goosebumps giving kind of writing. And I used to always think that I would write a book until I read her book. And I said, nobody should write after that. <laughs> so very, very beautiful. But I like reading all kinds of, um, all kinds of books. Um, but at the moment, very boring. I'm just reading Bhagavad Gita. But I think this is maybe the eighth or ninth different commentary I'm reading. So what's one thing bringing you joy right now in your life? My kids. They're uh, seven and nine, almost seven and nine. And we're having very profound conversations about everything. I really enjoy their company. My son, uh, nobody warned me about how much talking there'd be, you know, going on <laughs> with a nine-year-old. But, and he's also very interested in chanting. I do a little yoga lesson for them as well. Weekly, we have a, in the calendar, and they bring a lot of joy. Yeah, and they keep me not feeling very old. I have to say, I had them very late. So I had them at 40 and 42. But running around them keeps me young. Lots of joy there. Beautiful. So how can people find out more about what you do? And are there any things coming up that you want them to know about? The best place is my website. So vedastudies.com. V-E-D-A studies. We'll put it in the show notes as well. Yeah, that's the best way to find out about my work and to sign up for the free Veda Studies course that's on the website. This is There's about six hours of instruction and it's quite comprehensive and complete. So even if you didn't want to study any more Vedic chanting, this course will leave you with a daily practice. That's my intention and offering. 
Um, so you can learn the Gayatri Mantra with the right Vedic phonetics, good understanding of why we do this practice. And you can have me accompany you for your Japa practice. Uh, there is a 108 times recitation and you can play that and you can repeat with me and do your Japa like having company. So, and you can click on the live events link and you can see all the live events coming up. The first week of the beginning of November, I'm starting my next foundation course. That's on the 9th of November. So that's a very Which is what I, I am in right now and I can exactly. highly recommend. You learn, especially if you're a, a yoga teacher or, or doing work in any of the Indic this, uh, knowledge systems, you know, whether you're like your, yourself, an astrologer, a yoga teacher, or in Ayurveda or sound healing or any other kind of mantra practices like Kirtan or anything else, this foundation course will give you a very good basis to the Veda practice. You can learn, you know, the important mantras for peace, uh, mantras for japa, invocation mantras and sort of um, have a good foundation to learn other things like suktams. So beautiful. Thank you. We'll include all of that in the show notes so people can find you with ease. And it's been such a joy talking to you. So thank you so much. And you, Paula, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cosmic Business Podcast. We hope it was inspiring for you. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review for us so other spirit-led entrepreneurs can find out about us. I want to thank Team Podcast for production support on this podcast, as well as the musicians of the music that we're listening to now, Alexis Georgopoulos and Jeffrey Cantu Ledesma from an album Fragments of a Season, which you can check out wherever you listen to music. I hope you have a wonderful day and I look forward to connecting with you on a future episode.